Now, our Old Testament lesson today we're going to recite together. So if you would turn to Psalm 91, which is on page 817. I'll read the parts that are in normal type, and if you would please read together the parts that are in bold type. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. If you make the most, the most high your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard in all your ways. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. Our New Testament lesson today is from the first letter of Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. The sermon text is verses 6 through 9, but the lesson begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Father, we thank you for all of the promises that you make to us in your scriptures. 
And Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit uh, enlightens our hearts so that we may understand what you have to teach us, so that we may come to, to praise our blessed Savior forevermore. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, today in this passage, we're turning to the middle section, verses 6 through 9, of one long sentence in the original text that starts in verse 3 and ends in verse 12. And this sentence, this, this long sentence, is headed with Peter's exclamation, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verses 3 through 5, Peter was demonstrating God's praiseworthiness from the future inheritance that comes from spiritual rebirth. And as we turn now to verses 6 through 9, we consider just how God's transformation of our present suffering shows God's praiseworthiness. Because every one of us will suffer in some degree for our faith in Christ. Now, Peter was writing to a group of believers suffering intense social pressure for their faith. Well, faith in Christ will mean that you often go against the grain of the world around you. And at best, this is uncomfortable, and at worst, it can frankly be harrowing. You might be misunderstood by people you otherwise count as friends. You might have to forego opportunities in your career or at school or in some other organization. And yet, no matter what you suffer, in Christ and in his resurrection, you have a strong cause to rejoice. Even as we see the apostles in Acts chapter 5 rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing after they were beaten by the high council and warned by them not to speak any longer in Jesus' name. Well, we're not gluttons for punishment. We're not stupid or twisted enough to mistake painful experience for joyful experience. So why do we rejoice? In the midst of our sufferings, how can our hearts overflow, not just with joy that stays in our hearts, but in a public display of rejoice, because that's what rejoicing is. It's not something that stays inside you. It's not just a happy uh, feeling, but rather it's an outward expression of praise. Well, Peter is addressing this question in verses 6 through 9 for, by saying, in this you rejoice. He's referring, first of all, to everything that he said in verses 3 through 5. You rejoice in your rebirth and the future inheritance that is yours thanks to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And this hope for the future provides a perspective from which you can view your present suffering. And all the benefits of this living hope are waiting until they are revealed in the last time. But you rejoice in the confident expectation of them now. But Peter continues on from there as he gives a fuller explanation of how this living hope can lead you to rejoice in Christ through the various trials that we all suffer. 
In verses 6b and 7, we read about God's transformation of suffering. And in verses 8 and 9, we read about the God-given cause for rejoicing. So first, let's look at God's purpose for suffering. We could speak even of God's transformation of suffering. Because if you have faith in Christ, there's no cause for suffering to undermine your joy in him. Suffering instead strengthens your joy. And we're going to look here at the reasons why. We're going to look at the nature of trials, what happens in trials, and what is the result of trials. Well, first, as we look at the nature of trials, we see that the trials are in fact small in comparison to the blessings that you will obtain. For it says here in verse 6 that the trials are just for a little while. Well, I don't know about you, but to me it feels like this is actually probably the hardest point to understand about trials because trials just seem so endless. I mean, think about physical ailments, how as you get older, the aches and the pains just seem to sort of stack on top of each other, and some injuries are going to stay with you until the day you die. You may have friendships or even family relationships that have dissolved on account of your faith, and in this world you have no expectation of these relationships being mended. Perhaps your faith shunted you away from your dream job down a different career path, and that's going to be how it is until you retire. Yet even sufferings that last until the end of your natural life will pale in comparison with the eternity of perfect joy and satisfaction that awaits you. You can even, for an example of this, look to Christ's own resurrection and exaltation. For after the intense agony that he endured in his life and death, what happened? He was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of his Father in glory, where he now enjoys perfect and unending joy in satisfaction together with his Father and the Holy Spirit. And so his resurrection is a picture of the resurrection that awaits you too. So you can see in Christ how your trials today are small in comparison to the joys that await you. Next, we read here that trials are, in fact, necessary for the life of faith. Now, the phrase that is in English translated here, if necessary, it's not saying that uh, it's conditional. No, it's kind of a stock phrase in ancient Greek. It's referring to something that's necessary because it is fitting. Suffering is fitting for the Christian As we read it, Jesus saying in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so the Christian, though, does not suffer the way that everybody else does. For the Christian suffers in union with Christ. The Christian suffers as we are made like him. You're alienated from the world because you belong with God. And so your trials are not simply fate. Your trials are not simply a law of nature. 
But your trials are God's will for you as an aspect of your union with Christ. And now as we talk about how trials are part of the Christian life, I actually feel I'd be remiss not to mention a couple of ways this concept is sometimes abused. So first, the fact that suffering is God's will for you does not lead to the conclusion that you can trace every specific trial to some particular sin, whether in your life or in somebody else's. In John chapter 9, the disciples ask Jesus about a man born blind. They ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, it is true that God disciplines us so that uh, through suffering, sometimes he teaches us by his Holy Spirit that he is training us to walk in godliness, but not everything you suffer is because of one of your sins. Which leads to a second way that this concept is sometimes abused, which is that it can be a holy thing to inflict unjust suffering on another person. This is a tactic that abusers sometimes employ, even claiming that they're doing God's work in the life of the person they're abusing. And if you're being abused in this way, I encourage you, talk to our church officers, or if a crime is being committed, even to the civil authorities. Because if somebody is abusing you, they're not bringing trials into your life in keeping with God's will for trials in your life. But let's move on in the nature of trials. As we've said that trials are a part of the life of faith. They're a part of our union with Christ. But they're also serious on their own merits. It says here that trials cause the believer to be grieved. Even if these trials are small in comparison with the joy of eternity, even if they're necessary to the Christian life, trials are still a cause of sorrow and distress. These exact same trials that Christians face can and do crush people who suffer similar things, but do so apart from Christ. The trials of the Christian are no laughing matter. They grieve us seriously, and the only way that we can endure them is in Christ. And finally, there are, as it says here, they are various trials. Trials are different for every believer. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. He's citing all different kinds of trials, including physical, mental, social, and spiritual aspects of trial. And so trials really can be of all different kinds. And for different believers, they vary in seriousness. Some Christians even give up their lives on account of faith in Christ, but not every Christian does. Yet more or less suffering does not make you more or less of a Christian. All Christian suffering is varied according to God's providence and plan as he wisely works out his purpose in the lives of each one of us. So we have here the nature of trials in the gospel, small in comparison to the joys of eternity, necessary for the life of faith, genuine in character, and varied according to God's plan.
But let's turn next to what is happening in trials. And so here we read in verse 7 that the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Now this word testing is used many times in Scripture. I think a very relevant comparison is found in Genesis 22, where it says that God tested Abraham in commanding him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, God in the end provided a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac. But in this process, Abraham publicly proved that his faith was genuine by not withholding his own son from God. As John Calvin observed, by testing, God chooses to reveal and confirm the gifts that he has given believers. And that is what Peter means when he refers to gold being tested by fire. Now, the, the technical English word for this is assaying. It's, it's testing the content of gold ore or proving the purity of a precious metal. Now, we know that assaying precious metals through fire goes back to at least 500 years before the time of Christ and possibly as far back as the 3rd or 4th century B.C. Today, fire assaying remains the most accurate form of testing how much gold can be found in a vein of ore. Now, in the modern-day fire assay, which I say modern, we've been doing it this way for a little over uh, 400 years, uh, you, you mix together in a crucible this crushed gold ore, a flux, a source of carbon, and lead oxide. And then you take that crucible with that mixture inside and you heat it in an oven to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. It causes the lead and the precious metal to form an alloy while the remaining ore combines with the flux and makes a slag that floats to the top of the crucible and you can take that lead gold alloy off the bottom. Now a similar step then separates the lead from the gold and in the end, the gold content of the original ore can be calculated with an accuracy of 0.01%. You will know exactly the purity of that gold ore. And you see why the testing of gold is such a powerful metaphor for the process of testing our faith in God. 1800 degrees is a pretty intense heat. Yet the metaphor suits the intensity of Christian testing. It is necessary to prove the faith of those who are in Christ. So what happens in trials is that we are severely tested. But the intensity of the trials does not mean the believer is destroyed in the process. So let's look at the results of suffering. For God transforms your suffering and builds you up through it. For do you see what happens at the end of this process of assaying by fire? You're left with pure gold. Karen Jobes calls this testing a preparation for eschatological perfection. A preparation for the perfection that we will enjoy with God in the life to come. We read in Malachi 3 that he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. In Psalm 11, we read that the Lord tests the righteous, 
but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Testing by God is not on account of him wanting to do evil to you. It's never meant for the harm of the believer, but testing is done for those whom God loves and for your good. Here back in 1 Peter, we read that tested faith is more precious than gold. Now, the, the English translation here could even be a little more forceful. It could speak of perishing gold because in the English, it might sound a little bit like it's just saying, well, perishing just kind of happens to gold. But in the Greek, it's a little more clear that perishing, Peter says, is a natural property of gold. It's not something that just happens. But we also know that this is a little bit of hyperbole on Peter's part, because gold is one of the most stable metals that there is. It resists acids, it resists oxidation. You can take a single gram of gold and you can hammer it into a sheet three feet by three feet. Yet tested faith makes gold look unstable, makes it look perishing and worthless by comparison. For at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you will not have any of your gold, but you will have your tested faith. And so this tested faith, it says, will result in your praise and glory and honor graciously bestowed on you when Christ is revealed. As Paul writes in Romans 2, 7, that to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But if you're at all like me, you're thinking that, well, I don't really hold up all that well under pressure. Maybe at best you can sort of grimace your way through suffering, but rejoicing, that's far too much to ask. Yet Jesus is the one who went through the absolute worst suffering on your behalf. He endured the cross for you. He was raised from the grave for you. Whatever good comes from your trials is a gift from him. And any way that you fall short, any way that you suffer trials with hopelessness rather than rejoicing is still covered by him. Still covered by his blood. And if you receive Christ and his perfect righteousness, including his perfect and holy suffering, if you receive this by faith, all of his righteousness, all of his perfect holiness while suffering is credited to your account. It is yours in him. And the promise of praise and glory and honor at his future revelation is yours. And with this, we move from how God transforms trials for your good to even more explanations of the causes of praise, of rejoicing in suffering. For here in verses 8 and 9, we read of three causes for this rejoicing. We read about our love for, for Jesus, our faith in Jesus, and our confidence in his salvation. Now first, we read that we love Jesus even though we haven't seen him with our own two eyes. Can you, have you ever heard of such a thing? 
I sometimes have trouble loving the people I can see with my own two eyes. Yet, I love Jesus even without seeing him. We all love Jesus, even though we have never seen him, because we see him in Scripture, where the whole, to, to which the Holy Spirit has opened the eyes of faith. The Holy Spirit puts the truth of his word into our hearts. And as we read in Romans 5, he pours God's love into our hearts. And so as we live out our love for Christ, we learn to obey him. We learn to seek his praise and his honor more than our own. We learn to submit to his will. And he gives us such strength that if you are ever called upon to die for him, he will give you the strength to do it. And this love for him causes great rejoicing because we love to see his name honored. And we see his name honored every day in the lives of brothers and sisters who also live to serve him. We see how he is at work to save sinners like ourselves. We see how he is calling to himself people for a holy nation. And all around us, we see the contrast between the lives of those who hate him and the lives of those who love him. We see that the life of those who love him is truly the life well lived even though it may involve, will involve, many trials. And so we rejoice in love for him, even though we have never seen him face to face. And closely related to this love for him, we believe in him. Though he may appear to be absent, yet we trust him to save us. For in faith, you entrust yourself to his power and goodness, rather to your own as we read in Calvin. You know that you cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself right before God, but you have faith that he is able to do so. As Edmund Clowney writes, we live in the reality of Jesus being present with us through his spirit. Faith is not simply a belief in the facts about God, for faith embraces God's love and believes that he is favorable toward you. Faith doesn't cower before him, but trusts his promise that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this gift is not at all due to the greatness of your faith, but because of the greatness of the Savior in whom you have that faith. For Jesus perfectly keeps his promises towards you to do you good and to save you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of God's tender care for his people, saying, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? It does not take great faith to be cared for by God. Even little faith will do. And if you, you observe every time that Jesus addresses somebody as you of little faith, he is severely but graciously showing his care for that person and teaches them to trust in him every time he uses that phrase. In the Gospel of Luke, the apostles ask Jesus to increase their faith. And what does he say to them? If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. 
The requirement is not great faith, but faith in a great Savior. Suppose you're out rock climbing and you are in a tricky spot. You have to quickly decide between one handhold and another. A weak handhold will fail you no matter how much confidence you have in it. But a solid handhold will save you from a fall, even if you're not quite sure that you have confidence in it. And so in faith, we look to God for every good thing, and we have confidence that he will follow through. We may have little confidence or great confidence, but he will follow through. And this faith, as Thomas Schreiner puts it, means we're filled with joy, not with gloomy moaning. For God gives you a joy so great that it's inexpressible. Literally, it says in verse 9 here, unspeakable and full of glory and praise for Christ who saves us. Which brings us back full circle in verse 9 to the salvation that he gives us as the cause for rejoicing. Now the Greek here translated obtaining, it's not a, a participle that indicates we earn salvation by rejoicing, for it's a participle expressing the cause or reason behind our rejoicing. The sense could perhaps be a little differently put. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation is a gift from God. You don't earn it, but by faith you receive it. And yet the fact that this receiving uh, salvation, receiving the outcome of your faith. It's put here in the present tense, and that sets up a certain tension. For back in verse 5, we read that salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. But here we are in verse 9, receiving it in the present. For we enjoy a taste of the benefits of salvation now, and we rejoice in them. We haven't yet received salvation in its fullness Salvation has not yet completely purified our hearts, healed our bodies, or caused us to perfectly love our God and our neighbor. Yet we begin to taste it. And even as our faith is tested, we taste this salvation and rejoice in it more and more. You may be familiar with the story of William Wilberforce. He was a member of Parliament of the United Kingdom from uh, 1780 to 1825. Now, in 1784, he converted to an evangelical faith and resolved to commit his life in service to God. Well, this was a time in England where evangelicals in public life were ridiculed. And Wilberforce even wondered whether he should remain in politics or not. Well, he talked to John Newton. You may John know John Newton as the clergyman who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace a former slave trader who repented of his sins and grieved them to the day of his death. He and the Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger persuaded Wilberforce to remain in politics. He couldn't affiliate with any party. His conservative morals meant that the progressive distrusted him. His evangelicalism meant the conservatives thought he was a radical. And although he was a friend of William Pitt and he supported Pitt as prime minister, he never stood a chance at a cabinet post. But do you know what he did do? He became one of the key protagonists 
in the movement for the abolition of slavery. Well, you can never say that Wilberforce faced no trials. He was an outcast within Parliament. He often suffered ill health. His first bill to abolish the slave trade in 1791 was defeated 163 to 88. But do you know what he said in response? Let us not despair. It is a blessed cause, and success, ere long, will crown our exertions. It was a hard fight that he faced to bring Parliament around to the cause of abolition, but he did not despair because he expected that God would cause this cause to prevail. And so in 1807, Parliament voted 283 to 16 to abolish the slave trade. And in 1833, three days after Wilberforce's death, the United Kingdom abolished any remaining possession of slaves and set them free. Abolition was one of the main causes of Wilberforce's life, but he had an eye toward heaven too. For he said somewhere, I'm not sure exactly where, but he said, may God enable me to have a single eye and a simple heart, desiring to please God, to do good to my fellow creatures, and to testify my gratitude to my adorable Redeemer. History is full of people who persevered through trials and even persevered with joy to attain worthy earthly goals. That's a good thing. But we have a heavenly goal ahead of us. You have the complete goal, the complete salvation of your whole being awaiting you. And the thing is that Jesus Christ has already won this complete salvation for you. He strengthens you now. He strengthens you even through severe testing. So we have no cause to grumble our way through life, but rather every cause to rejoice in him. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for this great cause of rejoicing that you give us in Christ, your Son and our Savior. Father, we eagerly wait the day when we will see him face to face, when he will be revealed to the world as the world's savior, that he will bring home all of those who have faith in him. And Father, as we look forward to that day, we pray that you would put rejoicing into our hearts and into our actions. Father, we pray that we would testify to the world to the goodness of your great savior, to the goodness of your kindness, and that your Holy Spirit would put joy into our hearts, even in the midst of testing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.